What's up, everybody? You are going to be listening to episode six of What We Know. I'm your host, Phil, and in this episode, I'm bringing on a guest. It's one of my dad's friends who lives out in California. His name is Andrew, and in this episode, we're going to discuss his life living out in California, the transition from moving to New York to California, and also, we're just going to discuss the transition period of how he goes from living to in New York to living in California. So we're going to be talking about that for the next hour, hour and a half. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of What We Know, and I will speak to you guys soon. Hello. Can you hear me now? Is it good? We good? We're, we're good, pal. All right. How you been? I'm doing great, considering. Right. I'm doing really, really well. How are you, my friend? Pretty good. You know, I was just staying you know, survived a snowstorm that was out here on the East Coast. You know, oh, wasn't now. too bad. Uh, wasn't too bad. It was could have been worse. As long as you could see, my mom says, as long as you can see the tires, then it wasn't that bad of a snowstorm, I guess. I mean, some, well, pl- I, some places got it worse than others, but ours, uh, Staten Island, wasn't that bad. I think that's a good barometer yeah. uh, that your mom said, yeah, once those tires are covered, you're in trouble. Yes, absolutely. So I got to ask, uh, how's, uh, how's L.A. been? Since uh, the past few months, the whole pandemic, how's L.A. been? Well, um, it's been pretty uh, restrictive, as you know. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a high population state, high population city, and um, it's been, you know, pretty restrictive, Mm -hmm. Uh, restricted, I should say. And we went into a more restricted state Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was probably to try to stop the spread of this thing. and uh, with the holidays coming, there's a lot of movement around um, around the holidays. Now, what I will say is that when this first happened in late March, early April, excuse me if I I'm puffing on a cigar. So yeah, you're okay. You're, it's fine. Don't worry. It, it it adds to the character of the podcast. I think <laughs> I think it adds to it. So that's that's no problem with it. Well, I appreciate it, man. I'm I'm in, I'm out here on my um, on my patio. And um, my balcony, I should say. So I'm just enjoying uh, this beautiful day. It's 82 degrees, but it's 30 here. It's 30 here. So, uh, well, I'll be there in a couple of days. So, oh I'll yeah, I was going to ask, when are you coming back to visit? I'm coming back the 22nd. Oh, so okay, Tuesday. Perfect. Tuesday, yeah. So I will see you guys. You know, I'm staying only till the 26th, but I will see you guys somewhere in between. Yes, absolutely. So, how's the? Uh... How, like, since the pandemic started, would you say things have gotten worse, better? Like, how would you describe the coronavirus pandemic in L.A.? Well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll try to I'll try to keep it somewhat of a a, a synopsis. And um, so when it first started in in, uh, late March, early April, we had a pretty hard lockdown, uh, so to speak. And the streets were empty. I was doing essential business here. Um, you know, working in the food industry, um, ride sharing, all kinds of things like that. And the streets were like post-apocalyptic empty. Mm -hmm. Like there was no one on the streets. And you've been out here a few times, Phil. But, Mm -hmm. you know, when you live here on a day-to-day basis, you don't really, even though you know how much traffic is on the streets, you don't realize it until you see them empty, you know, it was like the Will Smith movie, like when there's nothing there but him and his him and his German shepherd. Yes, it was eerie. It was so shut down. And the only people that were on the streets were what you would call, 
you know, the, the permitted workers, you know, um, I don't like to say non-essential cause I think everybody's essential, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, there was only a select few people out there and everyone was locked down. Um, and everyone was quarantining, uh, cause we didn't know, you know, we didn't know what was, you know, what this was like. We've never, I'm 45. We've never experienced anything like this mm-hmm. in this type of thing. And this second wave of, of a hard, you know, stoppage of, of, of businesses, especially with restaurants, with, um, uh, bars and hair cutting places and nail salons. I notice people now are still being very careful, but there's a lot more exponentially more movement. And by the way, just a little addendum in the summer, we had, we had a, um, we had somewhat of a soft opening, a soft to almost moderate opening. Mm-hmm. There was there was a lot more quote unquote normalcy. Like, like trying you know, to get back to was... somewhat of a normal life that we had. Mm-hmm. Mm. The summer was pretty normal. Um uh, you know, other than of course the uh the tumult we had with that horrible incident that happened in June. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which affected everybody nationwide. But um I would say from the fourth of July to September, there was a um, what was the most normalcy, whatever that means, you know, in these last nine, 10 months. That was the most normal we were for those maybe eight to 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, like I said, you know, early summer through the mid fall. And then, you know, the cases started to spike again and we, we inched closer and then we now rapidly have moved to a more restrictive thing. But like I said, I notice people now are, it's not that they're not being careful. People are wearing masks, people are social distancing stores, businesses are following protocol, but there just seems to be a little bit more, I would say a lot more movement now. Mm -hmm. So if that sums it up a little bit, we can get more specific as you'd like, but if that sums up the trajectory. So basically I feel like, you know, comparing Los Angeles to New York, you have such big population, you know, areas of people who, you know, live and breathe. You know, you talk about New York being the city that never sleeps. You have Los Angeles of people who people go to make people go to LA to become stars out in LA. And I think it's just, it's just a crazy feeling when you realize that, both these high population cities and you mentioned how me and my dad were out there last year and literally we made jokes about how the traffic, you know, it says you're 10 minutes away from a place, but in LA you're about 30 minutes away. It's a hundred percent true. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's, it's weird because um, thinking about how it's just so different now and everything's changed that it's only been a year since we were out there yet, you know, things have changed so much that you can't even think about, you can't even you, you almost can't even remember what that normalcy was like as of right now. You you remember it, but at the same time you're like, Yeah, it only was a few it wasn't that that long ago that we had that, but it feels like we've been in this for a long time, honestly, with how long it feels like it's gone on for. Well, a hundred percent. And and you know, it's funny because there's things that you would never think would be muscle memory, um, that have become muscle memory. And uh, it's like, for example, I mean, um, you know, there's always that thing when you leave the house, wallet, keys, phone. Well, now it's wallet, keys, phone, mask or mm-hmm. face covering. 
you know, um, when I go into a uh, store, you know, uh, you instinctually, you know, it, it's like your hand reaches for your face covering. Yeah. You know, to put on your face, it's become something completely, you know, I mean, listen, hundreds of years in American society and I guess thousands, you know, worldwide, this is a relatively new thing um, that I'll be honest with you. Like, you know, when I walk, um, when I, when I go to the cigar shop once, once a week or once every couple of weeks, mm. you know, it's a different thing. Now they follow the protocols. But, you know, it's it's a little bit of a different, you know, it's a little bit of a different vibe. I mean, outside, you know, there's no outdoor dining here, but you can stand on the sidewalk and smoke a cigar. Like, I mean, you know, it's there's not that. So it's just a different thing. But even when I'm somewhere where things are a little bit more, let's say, lax, it's still you still reach for it. It's becoming part of of what we do. You yeah, know, and um, kind of, and that might me. not sound like a big thing, but it is. I mean, that's like kind of a major cultural shift, you know. Oh, yeah, and I think about at work too, being an essential worker at my job. You know, a few months ago, I go from just going to work and I don't have to worry about a mask or gloves or anything like that. First thing I do now when I get to work is I fix my mask, like you said, and I and I immediately get a pair of gloves to put on to get ready to sure. start working. I mean, I wasn't doing that a few months ago, and now I'm doing that. It's just. It's, it's a weird thing. And you talk about a cultural shift that it's not just like it's one place that's doing this. Like it's not just us in the United States that's doing it. It's around the entire globe. You're seeing a lot of people having to just adjust to a completely different lifestyle temporarily. You know, it's, sure. it's, 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 an, it's insanity to me that that's what we've had to adjust to the past couple of months. Well, if I can give you a, a quick little veer of a dichotomy, I, I think you I think I, I know I spoke to your dad about this and I'm sure I spoke to you, too. I was in in October. For some reason, it seems like six years ago. I, I agree. Everything feels like six years or 10 years. <laughs> it really does. It does. But I was in South Dakota in mm. October and South Dakota, um, other than maybe Florida, is probably the least restrictive state of mm the thing now here's the thing um you know when you watch the media they'll say well you know they're not doing this and they're doing this but when i went there um now what is it you cut out phil can you can you hear me you cut you cut i'm out so sorry it was somebody rang my phone i'm so sorry you're no you're okay what is it about South no Dakota? well what i was saying um again to be relatively briefly, um, it's a large state, but there's less than a million people. There's only 880,000 people. So everything is very spread out and their tourism season is very seasonal. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it is in the middle of nowhere. Um, it has two major, um, two major tourist attractions. It has uh, Sturgis, the bike rally. Um, and um, I didn't realize Sturgis is a tiny town. It's literally like four blocks Um and then there's that's it, like just just four blocks, you know, again, with slight exaggeration. But there's a major thoroughfare. Like when I mean major, I mean, there's a there's a there's like a main road okay. going through the town. And then there's some side streets. It's I mean, it's real. I think the town itself has less than 15,000 people. And um, and it seems like there's even less. You know what I'm saying? Like 
some of their businesses, for example, I wanted to pick up some Harley Davidson equipment. I don't have a bike, but my friends do um, from Sturgis. That's a pretty cool thing. Well, it was uh-huh. closed. Even the Harley Davidson store is seasonal there. You it's, know what I'm saying? It's insanity. Like it's just... super, super close. It's super quiet town. And and then there's Mount Rushmore. I mean, those are the two major. There's a lot of other really cool stuff to do, but those are the major things. But what I did notice was that it's not that they don't ask you to wear a mask. It's not that they don't ask you to social distance. It's not that they don't um, tell you these are the rules, the guidelines. And some businesses require it. Mm-hmm. But it's much more voluntary-based. Like, they're not now, asking you, like, please wear a mask. They're just like, you know what, you can if you want, but you don't have to. Is that sort of what you're saying? It's kind of like that. It's, it's like, it's not, you know, it's not even like they're saying don't. They're saying, listen, it's, it's something that we think would be beneficial. But it's not, it clearly was not a requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, I did notice the, the food handlers, um, the people who worked in the stores, in most of them anyway. Um, uh, especially like our waiters, our bartenders, they, you know, they had a mask. Um, they had masks, they had gloves, they had things like that. The supermarkets, no, the supermarkets, uh, they were not wearing masks. The ca- the cashiers were not, there was, um, there was a couple of stores. It's funny, um, at Mount Rushmore, two of the gift shops required a face covering, mm-hmm. but then like the ice cream shop didn't, it was unusual. <laughs> it was like, yeah, that was unusual. It was unusual, but it was much more, I think, based on what the business felt. Now, like I said, logistically, it's a very different situation because they don't have the same international traffic that New York and L.A. have, uh-huh. you know. Um, so there was there was that was a, that was like, whoa, that was a pretty big dichotomy. But um, in fairness to South Dakota, it wasn't. It wasn't like you didn't get this anti-COVID feel. You just got a more please be careful feel. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can understand that. I just uh, I just find it amazing. It's, it's almost amazing because you think with this pandemic, everybody would be, I guess, on the same level and pages. Yeah, there is a deadly virus going around and maybe we should do this to help prevent it and not get it or anything like that and then you have whether it's in either south dakota or if it's in north dakota i don't even know which of the dakotas <laughs> where you have a stat that says that one of every 10 people in the state are getting coronavirus currently and it's 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 insanity because you're asking yourself like this is how bad it is right now that that's that it's like only voluntary in some places but not mandated and others i just i can't wrap my head around that honestly no you 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 bring up an incredibly um interesting point and i think what it lends to is the historical um fabric of 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 the united states and the united states has always been there has been a a variance of thought and philosophy clearly we we know Mm. that um you know uh, unfortunately it, it even led to a a brutally bloody civil war i mean Mm -hmm. that's how divided yeah in in ideology um uh the american lexicon has been um for many years and i think uh part of it is that another thing too like i said in in somewhat of a 
maybe fairness to rural states. And, and you know, you've traveled a lot and you're going to travel a lot more. When you get off the coast and we'll get we'll actually skip. We'll actually loop this around to California. When you live in the Northeast, as I did for 33 years, and if you have your whole life now, mm-hmm. everything is very bunched up. When you look at New York, Philly, Boston, three major hubs, they almost blend into one city. You know what I mean? And the states are geographically next to one. So another. much smaller. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And They're when you on top of one another. Correct. I didn't, even though I had been out West a couple of times before I moved here, until you really live out here, you really don't really realize, and I drove across the country to get here, how big the states West of the Mississippi are. They're enormous. And well, it's like, you know, it's like if you get in your car from New York and let's say traffic is somewhat reasonable, you drive for six hours. You might have crossed through four states, you know, at least touched four states. Yeah. It's taken me four hours with traffic to get from San Diego to L.A. You know, I mean, which is really like a two hour drive. But yeah, it's usually a two hour drive. Well, again, you know, most of us, when we think of California, we think it's a long, skinny state. It's 400 Hmm. miles wide. Really? California. Yes, California. I didn't know that, honestly. No, it's it's. Listen, most of us don't. And even even though you know, again, by trade, I was a history teacher and, and a geography um, aficionado, but you don't realize it until you do it. California is so big, and mm-hmm. the other states, like I said, west of the Mississippi, are ginormous. Um, they're bigger than most countries in the world. Um, you know, if you take away Russia, Canada, Brazil, Australia, India, China, you know, we have American states. I mean, look at the size of Montana. I mean, good God. I mean, I, you know, I think Montana is like 650 miles from east to west. I mean, I'm just wow. kind of a guest in it. California is a thousand miles long. If you took California and you put Cal- the northern tip of California in New York City, the southern tip would end in Florida. Oh, wow. Georgia, Florida, again, somewhat of a guesstimate, but that's how big. So the thing is, so much of what we're going through with this COVID, you know, pandemic, so much of it is because of the contagion factor is space. Mm. And I think it's harder for people that live in towns of, you know, with states where the biggest city is 70,000 people like Casper, Wyoming, I think is the largest or Laramie, Wyoming or something is like the largest city in that state. Well, you can fit a couple of New York states, states in Wyoming, but their largest city is like, you know, 50,000 people. There are more people on Staten Island, I believe, than there are in the state of Wyoming. That honestly sounds like it's true, though. Right. I mean, like, so, does so sound, like Brooklyn, does population wise, Brooklyn is four times the size of Wyoming. Population wise, Wyoming is four times the size of the state of New York. Again, I may be off by, you know, a thing or two. So so I think the diversity of thought and the diversity of ways to handle it, I think is a lot of it is based on 
the way rural people perceive the world as to the way people perceive the world in giant media conglomerates like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, where everybody's on top of each other, sneezing on each other, touching mm-hmm. each other, Absolutely. bumping into each other, spitting on each other, punching each other. I'm <laughs> half kidding. Half kidding. Half, half, half. <laughs> Not totally, but half. All right. Uh, I think that's well, where you get a lot of the diversity of thought. Uh, well, I like the geography lesson we just got. Hopefully, anybody <laughs> who listens to this gets that uh, thought. So I got to ask this about going back to California now and being on what I wanted to ask you when I started this. is Please. You lived here, you said, in the Northeast in Staten Island, New York, for 33 years. Technically 30. I lived in. I was born in Jersey. Please edit okay. this out. Do not tell anybody I was born in the state of New Jersey. I'm joking. <laughs> Don't edit it out. Jersey, so I, I love, you, out. love you, Jersey. <laughs> but how does somebody who lives in the Northeast their entire, most of their entire adult life suddenly make the transition to go from New York all the way to out west to California? Where does that like motivation come from to eventually say, I want to move out to the big to the west to California? Fantastic question. And it's a couple of things. I mean, if you come out here, I mean, the the reason to make the big jump, especially the Southern California, uh, for most East Coast, Northeast people, is to be in the entertainment business, music, Mm -hmm. film, TV. Absolutely. That's I mean, that's the major thing, unless you just want to live a life of like a of a surf guy and you want surf person and be on the, you know, yeah. Southern California, which is actually a better reason. I think than it is to be in the entertainment field Um, Uh, again, half kidding. But, um, but that was the main motivation. It's like, if you want to, if you're, especially before online trading, if you wanted to be um, a big shot in wall street, well, there's only one wall street. If you wanted to be a Broadway dancer or singer, there's only one Broadway. If you want to be, you know, work in the major film industry, the major markets, especially before some of them kind of meandered to places like New Orleans and Georgia. But before that, and even to this day, this is the Mecca. You want to be a Mm -hmm. film actor. You want to be a screenwriter. You got to be in L.A. And -hmm. so that's the major thing. If that's what you really want, well, this is where you got to come. And even the best acting teachers, other than New York City, the best acting teachers, the best, you know, you can be a background actor here. You could do so many things. Um, We have marvelous film schools out here, UCLA, USC, terrific film schools. Um, So this is where you have to be. So that's what the motivating factor, um, as far as from a professional level. Uh Well, what year... What month and of what year did you move out to L.A. again? So Because I, I was young. I was young when you moved you out were. there. So. You were a youngster. Your dad was still yeah. trying to prevent Ryan from choking you and stuff. Um, <laughs> yes. That's not half kidding. That is the truth. <laughs> because there is no half kidding. He's your, he's your older brother. That's his job. Yes. And he's a wonderful yes. guy. Um, Absolutely. But uh, so I moved here in February of 2009. Mm-hmm. About two to three weeks after President Obama was inaugurated, to give you a little bit of a timeline. Yeah, that's how you know. Mm-hmm. For the first, the, obviously his first term. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So how leading up to it, like, were, was it something that you thought about for a while and then you finally decided I'm going to do it? Or was it sort of like a, 
I don't want to say last minute decision, but was it something where you eventually just said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go move out to Los Angeles and I'm going to do, you know, well, what exactly is it that you do out again in L.A.? Well, I mean, what I've studied and what I've done is um, and again, and as far as for, for all your listeners, you know, there's no let's not put anybody under any delusions. I've done everything out here and I've done absolutely nothing. <laughs> in a lot of ways from from what you would say like what you would say benchmarks for success in the entertainment industry um but what i came out here for um was to really primarily be a film and or television actor and okay. um now what i've meandered in even though i i still am acting i'm still in web series and um, I've been in all kinds of different films. I've done background work on TV and in film. Um, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Iron Man 2. Yeah, sure Curb Your Enthusiasm, all that. And again, that was, you know, basically background work. But um, I've meandered uh, into, uh, I wouldn't even say meandered. I've, I've become passionate about writing, writing projects and uh, screenwriting. I've written, I've written five spec scripts. I'm working on a couple for some people. Now I'm working on my own projects. Um, a spec script basically means that, um, it's not something a studio hired you to do. It's something, it's mm -hmm. a brainchild that you have that you will write. And then you pitch to people in the business uh -huh. that can get it funded. The seed was planted, um, for me, um, when I came here on a family vacation at 10 years old in 1985, Okay. Um, that was when the first seed to move here was, um, and then through my teens, through my early twenties, I went to college. I became a school teacher, was a proud school teacher, worked for many years with your, with your father, had a wonderful time. Mm -hmm. Um, but then in my early thirties, um, my marriage dissolved. Um, I was kind of, I had a very good life. I had marvelous friends. I had, a, I had a active social life i played tons of rec league sports softball even touch tackle football basketball but there was something i realized that the entertainment bug the creative bug was just gnawing at me my whole adult life and it was why i had uneven results in my personal life it's why i had uneven results in many aspects of my life because it was just something that was gnawing at me and I felt incomplete without at least trying it. There was something, there was a seed planted in me at a very young age that at some point I wanted to come out here and I wanted to live in Southern California and I wanted to work, live and play in the sunshine, in the entertainment realm. That's what really drove me. It just took me longer than it takes some to get here. Because I was torn between my family life, not that I have, as you know, I don't have children or anything. I certainly wouldn't have, you know, left that. That would have changed the dynamic. But, you know, me, my yeah. mother, my grandmother, my sister, my extended family, my friends who I consider family. I consider you and your father family. I consider the guys I grew yeah. up with family. And you know how it is when you grow up in a place like Staten Island or Brooklyn, your, your neighborhood, your community. Your sports teams is everything to you. It's a very hard thing to leave. How was it like, would you say, the first, take us through the first month, like you said, February 2009. Take us through that first month 
of living out in California? And would you say, like, would you say you got homesick very easily? Would you say that you were ready to adjust to that new life out in L.A.? Or how would you describe that first month out in L.A.? Well, the thing is, because I was already in my early 30s, almost approaching my mid-30s, really, um, I was mentally prepared for the change in the sense I was well into adulthood. So, and I wanted to come here. So other than missing friends and family, I wasn't homesick. Culturally, there was things I expected. And then there was even things that I thought I was, I I was uh, ready for. And I wasn't Uh, the first day I moved to LA, I put my bags down in the morning. I had an audition for a little black box theater play. Uh, black box theater is like a 50 seat theater. It's like a small community. I actually, yeah, we had, uh, when I went to high school, we had like our own version of a black box awesome. theater in my high school. So I know exactly what it is that you're describing. So you know. And I auditioned yes. for it and I got a part in it. And then the person, um, the person who was in a, a bigger role, couldn't do it anymore or had a falling out. So I was elevated to that and it was a really nice little piece. So that was the first day I was here and I just jumped into anything. I, I actually set up auditions in New York for the, when I moved here. So I, I joined um, an improv, a little bit of an improv troupe. I, uh, I did open mics for stand up comedy. I did open mics for um, uh, open jams, what they call it. it's like where you go to, uh, an improv like uh, Upright Citizens Brigade, which is a, a very famous place where a lot of famous people came from, a lot of SNL uh-huh. alums. And you could go there once a week and put your name in a hat and you could join these impromptu uh, improv teams and perform for people. And I did that right away. I did that early. Uh, and so that was a lot of fun. It was all positive. It was all excitement. The one thing that was very hard to get used to was working. I went from being a school teacher and um, had been in the education system for a while, uh, yeah. you know, almost, about a decade. Um, actually, it was a decade. And I had a steady salary and I had mm-hmm. magnificent health benefits. And it was unionized labor, which means you had job protections. You know, it's like a boss couldn't come in there and just say, I think my dad, I think my dad, like once a week tells me all about being in a union, like at least once a week tells me how good it is being no, in a union. I mean, listen, I mean, the benefits of it are fantastic and, and unionized labor has done so much, you know, for, um, for Americans and, and, and people around the world. Um, so you're, you know, I was accustomed to that and I was accustomed to also not only having that, but the people you work with become your family like your dad did to me, like other people who work there did. And everyone really, really watches out for each other. Well, L.A. is not really like that. And would you say that there are a lot more of like, I guess you can use the term backstabbers out in L.A. who will do anything to get ahead? Of well, without a doubt, you know, without a doubt. And, you know, um, you know, even if I could even just maybe uh, not that it's not true, but amend the term backstab too, it's really survival of the fittest. It's more Darwinian in the sense it's not mm. as much as people are trying to hurt you, but it's like, I have to get where I have to get. And I'm sorry, but I really don't have time to help you. 
that doesn't mean nobody helped me. Mm-hmm. There was I worked with some amazing people in the restaurant business, bussers, barbacks, bartenders, um, who were incredibly helpful to me. And they put up with my missteps and and things like that, you know. Um, so there was somewhat of a family environment. I would say there was actually a big family environment. But, you know, my base pay was $8 an hour. You know, I was making mm-hmm. upwards of $70,000 a year 13 years ago, <laughs> you know. And I went yeah. from working – I went to working two to three days a week making 8 bucks an hour plus tips. That is a massive – massive oh absolutely lifestyle change yeah i was thinking i was thinking that that must be just totally insane to adjust to making that like you said decent of a salary to going that much it it, it goes down because you're immediately going to only a couple dollars an hour to you know plus tips like you said so it must have been a completely different change of tone for you i would say well in january of 2009 I was leaving home in the morning with a hundred dollars in my pocket for like walking around money. Like if I wanted a sushi lunch, if I wanted to stop at the mall and buy a new sweater, if I wanted to buy a pair of sneakers too, in April, I was eating in the morning and I was eating it. I was eating late at night. Uh, There were times I couldn't afford lunch. I mean, I actually lost about 15 pounds. Um, Literally in a 12 week span, I had, I was going from having, like I said, about a hundred bucks a day just to kind of play with because I worked second and third jobs. So it wasn't even just my, my teacher's salary. It was everything else. But here's the difference. I may have done that, but I was doing, I was on movie sets where I was sitting next to Robert Downey Jr. I was sitting behind Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) I bumped into Don Cheadle and the late Gary Shandling, rest in peace, in the bathroom. I shook. This is when Iron Man, this is when Iron Man 2. Well, that was that one, you know, and then I was, you know, I did background, um, um, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And, you know, Larry David got off a golf cart and um, he almost like by accident stepped on my shoe. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And we shook hands. And I'm like, yeah, I have a lot less, but man, has my life also changed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. that's changed too. And, um, or for example, um, rather than going to my day job on a Tuesday afternoon, I was rehearsing for a play on a Tuesday afternoon. And then I was going to Malibu. And sometimes I had $20 on me. So I said, okay, so put $10 gas in your car and you got $10 to grab a beer or, you know, or have a hamburger. But I was on the beach in Malibu. Sometimes, you know, in, in early, uh, in early April, um, before the summer things and some, you know, there were, there were days I had that whole beach to myself and you're watching dolphins jump out of the thing and you're bodyboarding and body surfing. So I had mm-hmm. exponentially less materially, but I did have a different type of viewpoint on the world and peace of mind um, that I wouldn't trade for anything that I wouldn't trade for mm. anything. Uh, so no matter what I lost materially, um, the experience was just well worth it. I had lived in a rat race, um, uh, drive, drive, work hard, play hard, work hard, play hard, you know, for over 30 years. Well, you know, not as a child, but you know, New York's intensity 
And like I said, and I'm like, I only got 25 bucks on my name right now, but I don't care because I'm, I'm in this beautiful place. I'm, I'm, you know, doing what I wanted to do. I'm, I'm creating, I'm learning, I'm taking acting classes, I'm laughing. Um, so it's a Wednesday afternoon and guess what? I don't work till tonight. I'm kind of just chilling. I'm walking the streets of Hollywood. I'm looking in old record stores. I'm taking an acting class. I'm going to play rehearsal. I was meeting amazing people there. So it was, it was a welcome change in that respect. Doesn't mean it didn't have some downfalls, but at the end of the day, it was all positive. Was there ever a moment in time, because that almost like was going to answer my question is, has there ever been a moment in time where you kind of think to yourself, like, was there ever a moment in time where you said, did you ever consider moving back to New York when you moved out to LA or you always thought, no, like I'm, I'm here to stay. Like I want to be out in LA in this sunny California, beautiful place. Weather's always never for more than a fleeting moment, to be honest with you. And now if I would have come here in my twenties, I think the draw, which is a part of me wanted to, but I think the draw of home, the missing of home, I think would have been, too much i think i probably would have drawn me back but at that point in my life i had i had reconciled with myself it's and it wasn't but i said to myself in your 30s it's kind of too late to go back and a part of me Mm -hmm. and pride is involved because a part of because listen when you tell someone you're moving out to california and you're going to be in the fam in the business i don't care how many people are behind you? And I had so many great people behind me. Everyone says the same thing, whether it's to your face or behind your back, he's going to be back in six months. And I wasn't going to be that guy. I wasn't going to be the guy, hella high water, that was going to come back in mm-hmm. six months. I would have slept under a boardwalk before I gave um, the naysayers <laughs> satisfaction. That's just my own, you know, that's just my own ego. Yeah, um, would would you? Um, so you've been out there for gonna be twelve years in now, right? Well, uh, twelve, yes, twelve, twelve in February. If you can name, just I'm curious about this. If you can name a moment in time where you could remember meeting, whether it was a certain actor in a movie or play or whatever, recently or a long time ago, has there ever been an actor that, like, when you met them or anything like that, it, like, jumped out to you? Like, holy shit, I'm in the same vicinity of this there person. There was a couple times. There was a couple of times. And and um, this is such a great trip down memory, memory lane. Thank you. There was a couple of times. So the first time was, was I guess, because um, it was very – it was one of the first background gigs I did. But I positioned – I was positioned where I was very close in in the um in the in the Iron Man two scene in that courtroom scene, it was the first day of shooting yes. on the project. And what mm. Robert Downey Jr. did, he spoke to the background actors, and he really made us feel a part of the production. And I was sitting not, you know, not ten feet from him, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Don Cheadle, because in the scene they're all sitting together, right? And yes. Yes, that was one of this you're not in Kansas moment anymore. I said, I was a school teacher like a month ago. Like, where am I? Like, this is insane. Mm-hmm. And again, it wasn't like I had like a partner, 
so to speak, in the film at all. But I'm like, this is nuts. That was one of the things. One of the other things about that set was because it was such a big production, they fed us very well. The bigger the production, usually the better the, the, the background actors um, get fed. And you think about it, it's, mar- it's Marvel. Think about well, how Marvel, Marvel has grown and since... And here's yeah, another thing. Before that, because we were all in suits, they sent us down to Marvel Studios in Manhattan Beach to get fitted. So oh, I wow. walk in there and, and there's basically a tailor custom making your suit. Not making it, but custom fitting you in a suit. And you get paid for that. Now, I was non-union back then, so I got paid eight bucks an hour. So I basically got paid $16 to go down to to get fitted for a suit but those were the you're not in kansas moment anymore and for me it was just so great it was like picture you know as a baseball player you know it's like just it was like it was like not getting on the field at yankee stadium or city field but it was like being in the locker room you know what i mean it was like it was brushing elbows with jacob de grom or with mariano rivera like Mm. It was just a feeling of like, this is where I want to be. This is where I belong. That was the first real moment of like, this is dope. Like, I don't care that I'm not getting paid. I don't care. I'm not making a lot of money. Like, this is just, this is just cool stuff, man. What do you remember what Robert Downey Jr. said to you? Or like, well, to the background actors, what what he said. What was so unusual is that when you go on set, you're supposed to know this anyway, but every once in a while they reiterate, um, do not touch, do not talk to the principal actors. Do not, don't you dare try to take a picture with them. Don't you dare, you know, ask for an autograph, like super, super unprofessional, super Bush, Bush league. Oh, wow. And, but what he did was he said, um, I'll never forget this. We're sitting in the in the gallery. We're we're getting we're setting up the first shot. Well, we John Favreau and the team was, and they, they said um, Robert Downey got in front of everyone and he said, um, "Everybody, I'm Robert Downey Jr." As if we didn't know. Welcome to Iron Man Two, and everybody just started applauding. And he said, "We're going to do a little bit. We're going to do some different things on this one. There's a love triangle involved." Uh, we're trying some different storylines, and if it doesn't work, nobody gives a shit because we're going to all make so much fucking money. What's the difference? And we all oh, just wow. burst into laughter. Oh, wow. And he was, from that moment on, he was coaching. I don't want to say coaching because I don't want to be disrespectful, but like to Sam Rockwell, to Don Cheadle, they were all very clearly invested in their roles. And for him, it was like walking in the park. And you got to remember, he's been in movies since he was a kid. His father was a was a prominent gone through film person. I think this, was, gone through gone through everything in his life. Gone he's been in jail. Recovery, he's been in state penitentiaries. I mean, been in jail. I mean, this guy, this guy went from the top of the world to the bottom of the world to the top of the world again, literally in the span of a couple mm. of decades. So this was nothing to him, and. Um, he just kept the mood very light. The lunches um, were, 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 were lavish uh, because it was, it was an expensive set. So we, I mean, you know, one day we had poached salmon. I think we had like, you know, filet mignon the next day. I mean, it was, you know, like I said, you're in the bathroom and 
you know, he's taking a leak next to Gary Shandling and, you know, like, you know, trying not to, you know, bump into Don Cheadle walking on the thing. And like I said, for someone who had never really done that, um, even though I had taken acting classes and was a little bit familiar with the business, you know, it's like, you know, it's like be professional, enjoy it. And, but it was also like, allow yourself to say, shit, man. Wow. I'm, I'm doing this. like, I'm, I'm actually on the set with, I'm, I'm on a movie set with one of the most, not even at the time, like, obviously everybody knows who Robert Downey Jr. is by that point in time. But if you think about it now, 11 years later, like that was that's fucking it. Robert Downey Jr. It's well, pretty crazy. It. And, and, and like, it's, it's like, not only that, but on some level, you're saying to yourself, not only am I here, you know, you pay. Most people might pay $200 a day to do that. You're getting paid for it and you're getting fed for it. Mm-hmm. Again, not the way, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't know if your, your listeners know this, but I got paid less than Robert Downey did for that movie. Um, but, uh, but you're getting paid for it. You know what I mean? You're, 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 you're technically, mm-hmm. you're technically a professional actor and there's something really, really cool. If that's what you're into, you know, and um, I certainly uh-huh. am and I certainly uh, was and still am in a lot of in, in all those ways. And uh, so that was that was like the first major thing. It made me want more. It made me want more. Uh, you always talk about an, one actor that always jumps out to me that you talk about that you've spent time with personally. Yes. Is Tom Sizemore. We always know, for any of my listeners don't know that I love Sidney You don't Kirk know Rodney. how to shut up. Love you his role in that movie. Up. You don't know how to <laughs> shut up. <laughs> One of my favorite movie dialogues of all time. I mean, talk about just, and that's the thing too I want to get into, is just talk about knowing that you talk to someone who's been in a movie, especially a Spielberg movie, and had such a big part, because obviously we all know who Steven Spielberg is, directed just so many great movies itself. I mean, you've been, you have been in the well, same room with him personally. With him. We've and done improv him, right? scenes, you know, and um, uh, I've actually, you know, mm. I've, I've, again, this not for a major film project at all, just for, um, just for fun. I mean, it was a little bit of a story arc and uh, I've done scenes with Tom. I've, I've, and I'll show him to you one day. How did you meet, how did you meet I met Tom? him through a friend. How did you meet Tom? I met him through a friend. I met him through, wow, that's crazy. Just saying, I, I met Tom, I met Tom Sizemore through a friend. And, um, mm. and Tom was, um, you know, as you know with actors, you know, their careers peak and valley to it. It, it, it. And it doesn't mean that their, their skill level diminishes. It just means that the business is cyclical. You know, the business, you know, one day uh-huh. wants to hire you for something and then the business kind of, you kind of cycle down a little bit and then it says, you know, who would be great in this? Let's, you know, we haven't seen blank in a couple of years and he'd be good for this. And, and let's, you know, let, let's get him. Um, let, let's, let's do that. So um, I met Tom um, and uh, we had a relationship, a friendship and um, you know, uh, without divulging any, um, any uh, of his personal life, Tom is a creative genius. Um, Tom can play the guitar, mm-hmm. uh, like you wouldn't believe, um, oh, wow. you know, I was hanging with Tom in his apartment he plays this song for me and he sings it and 
sings it really well. And I'm like, Tom, man, that's fantastic. By the way, who wrote that song? He went, oh, I did. You know, like, you know, oh, yeah. when when you meet um, when you meet top level artists, you don't realize how multifaceted they are as far as artistically. Um, uh-huh. And um, a huge sports fan, by the way, a fantastic athlete. I had a catch with them. Uh, I could tell you I could tell you at the time he was almost 50 years old and he could throw a football 60 yards on a line like I, I'm, I'm not kidding, like a oh, fantastic wow. Like that good of an athlete. Oh, like, like, like that yeah, good of an like athlete. Like literally throw a football 50, 60 yards on a rope. Like, I, I mean, um, wow. just, and he told me, you know, oh, you know, I'm a star quarterback as a kid. I certainly believed him because I could see what he could do as, in, in his middle age, in, in his, you know, late his 40s, 50s, early yeah, 50s. Yeah, middle age throwing the guys, 50, 60 um, yards. The guys, yeah. you know, uh, knew everything about sports. Um like I thought I knew a lot. And, and I mean, he remembered just every detail of every game and just a huge sports fan, a huge music fan, a huge entertainment fan, politically astute, probably why he was so good in political dramas like Black Hawk Down, like um, Saving Private Ryan, because those um, a, a big patriot, by the way, a, a tremendous amount of respect for our, our men and women in armed forces, tremendous amount. And they loved him, too because they love the way he portrayed them because of his, his authenticity mm-hmm. that comes from a passion and a love for those things. You know, as an actor, it's very hard yeah, to absolutely. portray those things if you don't connect to it. Yeah. I, I, I find it so fascinating about that with, with you is just saying how you have these stories where it's almost like, you know, them on a, personal level you described the downey the robert downey story and it's kind of funny because you're almost saying it like mm-hmm. put yourself in that scenario and robert downey jr is telling you yeah listen if this movie, right. whether it works or whether it doesn't for audiences now we're gonna make a lot of fucking money from Justin. it, it i don't matter. i don't know robert at all i don't i don't know well, I, never, yes. I never even but, said but still you're just, in that just, again, I, I like keeping you know authenticity uh, but i was in the in the presence of that thing you know but tom i actually you know um yeah uh, had a friendship with, you know, um, uh, relatively brief time, but uh, it's not that we had a falling out. I just got to spend time with him, have coffee with him, hung out of his apartment, um, did some uh, improv scenes with him. Um, out, of, out of curiosity, when you spend, when you spend, uh, when you, you know, spend your time with him, did you ever, did people notice him yeah, all the time while you guys yeah, were all out the time. and about? Um, even really, you know, even when we were like maybe sitting in the corner of a Starbucks or maybe just walking, you know, from a coffee house to his apartment. Um, uh, if there was, if we walked by four people, you know, three of them, three of them said hi to him, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh we, wow. I, 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 I'm, I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, think about what you talk about, just the two things, Black Hawk Down and Saving Private Well, he's Private the second Ryan. or third lead you know, male actor. Very noticeable guy. Movies in the last 25 years. I mean, this, this, this guy wasn't, this, he yeah, wasn't absolutely. a character actor. No, this, I love character actors. They're my favorite. But Tom was a movie star. I mean, there's a difference. There's a, there's a big difference, you know. Uh-huh. What would you say the difference character between a character actor and a movie people star? see them, and I've seen so many. Character actors, when people see him, say, you're the guy from that, you're the guy from that, aren't you? Or you're the blank from girl from that, aren't you? 
movie stars, people say right away, mm-hmm. oh my God, it's you. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, oh, there's okay. no, there's yes. no um, distinction between, like, like there's no, like there's no question. It's like, right. you know, it's, it's this person and you're not even just thinking about one role. You're thinking right. about, it's like, it's oh you. my goodness. It's Mick Jagger. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, um, mm-hmm. like if you see Mick Jagger, you're not like, I know him from somewhere. You're like, it's fucking Mick Jagger. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so cool. I mean, would you say what was like, if you had to name, I'm going to, this is a tough question for you and it's going to be a thinker for you. If you had to name out of the almost 12 years you've lived there. So you've lived there from 2009 to, to now. What would you say was like the best year for you out in California? On the calendar year wise, what was like the best That's year a, that is a for great you out question. in California? And, you know, they've all been they've all been an amazing learning experience, but I would say probably 2000, 2012 and 2013, I okay. really started, I really got in with some very good acting coaches. Um, and I really mm-hmm. learned much more about the business than I knew. So I was... I learned more about screenwriting. I learned more about the business aspect that, you know, Hollywood is a game of hurry up and wait. And I learned that it, it is a marathon to accomplish things out here. Um, you know, Brad Pitt was, was um, Brad Pitt, Brad fucking Pitt was toiling around here for eight mm-hmm. years before he got a major break. And, you realize that you mm. become a part of projects that are right there and then it falls through. So much of it is funding. Um, but when I got to a point where I wasn't just trying to, oh, let me be in this. Let me be in that. Let me do this. Let me do that. Let me take this class. Let me take that class. Let me do this student film. Let me do that student film. When you realize that um, the layers of the business and that it's like anything else, you have to be well-trained, you have to be dedicated, and mm-hmm. you have to sometimes find, um, and you definitely have to find a way to survive in a very expensive city um, that does sleep, unlike New York City, which never sleeps, um, mm-hmm. that making money yes. out here never is, is a lot more challenging. You know, if you work at a pancake house, in really any of the five boroughs full time. I mean, you can make two to 400 bucks a day waiting tables, California. You know, we go through months here where restaurants are empty. I'm talking of course, pre, pre, pre COVID. Um, so yes, you know, making money is a challenge. Um, doing without, you know, um, being used to be able to walk into a store and, you know, not buy anything you wanted, but it's like, okay, I need a new pair of sneakers. I'll spend 80, 90 bucks on pairs. There are days, you know, there are times you go weeks without being able to do that because you have to pay your rent, your bills, your food, your acting classes, mm-hmm. uh, headshots, all these things you need for the business. 
you um, you put those first. But the years I like, I said, like I said, once. Well, yeah, because said, after that, 2012 the first couple of years, I was bar backing, I was bussing tables, I was doing that. But after um, after the first year and a half, um, I got better jobs in the restaurant industry, which like I got a waiter job. Then I became a waiter that they put on the schedule all the time. Then I became a bartender. Then I became an assistant manager. So even though I wasn't rolling in money, I had more financial um, my more financial means. So th- that was less stressful. Uh-huh. Um, I had already taken some classes. I had networked. I had done student films, you know, what you'd call little like guerrilla filmmaking projects where now the people in the, in, in my circle, which was mostly other actors and waiters that were also trying to be um, break into film had um, gotten to know me. I had, I had uh, worked with some really good people, um, really good actors in acting classes and, um, you know, so when you when you bring dedication to class, then people trust you. Then people say, hey, listen, I have a project. I think I'd, I'd love to have you join. Um, I want to do a scene in class. It's a big scene, but I want to do it with you. That stuff, even though maybe it's not monetarily gratifying, is very artistically gratifying. So when I started to find that, like I said, maybe after 2011, that's when things started to get even more fun. Uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I had always like wondered that about long time been now. there for so long over now, a long time. Yeah. So I was like curious about that because just thinking about, like I said, I was, you say February, 2009. So I wasn't even, I was only, I had right. only been seven a few months. <laughs> When you moved, yeah. So that that makes you. I was almost thirty-four, and then I was seven years old. Yeah. (laughs) So there you go. I mean, it's it's crazy to think that I was wondering that for so long too. Like, what would he say that his best months have been since just being out there as a whole? I've been so curious about that. So I got this. Kind of leads me into like a next question is. You talk about being out there for so long, everything like that, meeting people, whether it's Robert Downey Jr., whether it's Tom Sizemore. Has there ever been an encounter you had with actor, actress, whatever, where when you met them, they just like were having, you know, obviously these people, I think ten people tend to forget <laughs> yes. that they're just human like the rest of us. Has there ever been a time where you met one of them and they just were not in a good mood, had such a they were just having a bad day. They didn't want to talk. Wanted, didn't want to be bothered I, anything again, like that. Again, um, the counter fantastic, like that? fantastic question. I I can't say I've ever met anyone that was rude to me, and but I have. I I want to tell you uh-huh. two to three encounters of many, um, um, okay. that that really stick out. But I think I've always had. Nine again, I want to say almost a hundred percent, maybe ninety nine percent of the time. I've always had fantastic encounters because I um because I always try to treat them as human beings. Um most of the encounters, by the way, have been in the restaurant field. You know what I mean? Like that's where most of my encounters were. Like not okay. like, oh hey, I yeah. was uh well when I worked with uh, George Clooney, you know, we had this nice room. No, I mean I I haven't done things like that. So most of my encounters have been you know, either uh, bumping into them or in the restaurant business. Um, 
So there was, there was, there's a couple that stand out. First, I have to tell you this. Um, I bust the table, okay. um, bussing meaning cleared the table that Derek Jeter was sitting at. Um, I don't know if I ever told you that. Did oh, I? Wow. You? Yeah, he. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think know the Yankees story. were playing the Angels, and it was when the Lakers were in mm. the champ. Uh, the Lakers won the, the the time before this time. I guess was what two thousand nine. Okay, two thousand ten. And no, two thousand ten. It, well, they what they Correct. went back to that. So they I, won in two thousand nine. They also won two thousand ten. Because I think I was still bussing tables, so this was like two thousand nine. Um, Derek Jeter came to the sports bar I worked in, the Happy Ending, which was an amazing sports bar with amazing people that gave me amazing opportunities. I love them all, every single one of them. And um, uh, he came into the uh, bar, I think, with his sister, I think, to watch the game, and. Uh, because we were pretty much the premier sports bar in the, in the, in the, in the city, certainly in Hollywood at the time. And, um, you know, his, his party, you know, he was there with a few, you know, five, seven people. And, um, it was just literally mundane stuff. Like, um, are you done with that? Sure, man. Gotcha. Did you enjoy it? Cool. Like walk that. But even those little interactions, um, were like kind of surreal. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Um, that was like, it just, it's like Derek Jeter, man. Like, you know what I mean? You know, I'm a diehard Mets fan, yeah. but it's an icon. What's, it's a, it's like, an yeah, icon. Like... Um, so I wanted to tell yeah, you, absolutely. I wanted to just give you that. Cause I, I know your connection to the Yankees. Um, but, the, but some of the ones that were yes, surreal and I'll, 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 I'll tell you, I'll tell you this one, um, with, uh, uh, Johnny Depp, and the only reason I'll, I'll divulge is because it's public domain. In other words, it's been on TMZ and stuff, so it's not like I'm, I'm divulging oh, wow. him, him on a on a on an off moment. Um, uh, you know where like only I saw it. You know what I mean? Only like staff saw it. Um, yeah, yes. but I was working. Like people, um, I won't even say it. where it was, but I was working um, at a bar, and he came in. And um, he had been out with friends and, you know, I guess he had been imbibing and stuff. And uh, he came in and he sat and he was very, very polite, incredibly sweet, polite guy. But, you know, it was late at night, early in the morning, so to speak. And um, when he left, uh, he had people, friends, I guess, one or two guys uh, guiding him to the door. Not like, you know stumbling or anything but you know he's been a long night let's put it that way and um okay paparazzi was waiting outside for him and they really are very parasitical um they really can be i understand they're trying to get a picture they're trying to make money some of them treat the actors uh, and celebrities with tremendous uh respect and some don't and some are very invasive Mm -hmm. And he walked outside the bar and a camera guy. And again, I was working there. So even though I was behind the bar, but my managers, you know, when you have a VIP, your job is to make them feel safe, to make them feel secure, to make sure people aren't bothering them and costing their people. They want to eat a cheeseburger. They want to have a beer. They don't want to be, you know. Pounded, yeah. I mean, to take a picture and sign an autograph, you know, talk to a pretty gal is one thing, but they don't, they certainly don't want to be, they don't want to feel in danger. And 
So I was working behind the bar. It was crowded. Mm-hmm. And he steps outside. And this this uh, paparazzi puts this big camera in his face and snaps a picture with that big bulb. And the person mm-hmm. who was helping him turned around, not to like slug the guy, but to say, hey, you know, that's not cool. He kind of let go of Johnny and Johnny face planted like right in the thing. And it was on TMZ oh again, this public domain. I think it's still on YouTube. So again, it's not, it's not a secret I'm divulging, um, but I was there, you know, and, and I was like, Oh my God. I was like, that sucks. Like, and it's like, is this, you know, like, is this really happening? Am I really mixing a cocktail and, you know, like Johnny Depp face planted in front of me. And, you know, it's like those surreal moments you just don't, Get mm. when you're working in a, you know, another type of job, um, and so that was a pretty. And then again, it was you know, the day, the next day, it was all over TMZ. It was even in the tabloids. I think even the New York Post covered it. Um, but you know, that was like kind of a, 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 oh, a surreal wow. moment. Um, another moment I had. Um, I am a huge fan of Outkast, the rap group, the rap duo, Outkast, Andre Three Thousand, and Big Boy. Huge yes, fan. I know. And, I know that. Yes. It was a bar, a dive bar, but a great dive bar near my old apartment in Hollywood, okay. right in central Hollywood, called The Woods. It's still there. I hope they survive because they don't serve food. and God knows if they're going to survive or anything, but it's still there. And it had this motif mm-hmm. where when you walked in, it was divey, but like um, they had, you know, like I guess fake trees and uh, wooden benches. AKA, you know, for woods. And I was in there and I used to go there at least once a week. And one night uh, on Sunday nights, they used to have a DJ that played like funk and soul and old hip hop, which I love. And I'm in there one night and, uh, you know, I don't think on a Sunday, I don't think there was more than maybe 15 people in the bar. And I look over at the DJ table and it was Andre 3000. Now, Andre is not only a, a, a legendary rapper, but he's a movie star. Oh, he was in the, sh- the movie what Four Brothers. He, in? Um, he is. Uh, he had been in okay. a lot of um, other films. Um, he was slated to play Jimi Hendrix, uh, which he resembles Jimi Hendrix. He has the musical ability. He has the charisma. The project, I think, never never got off the ground. Um, but he's been in a lot of stuff, and of course, Outkast. Like one of my favorite artists, and again, I try not to. Uh-huh. I try to uh, not to bother people like, you know, people like that. But it again, it was a slow night. Yes. And yeah. I just respectfully walked up to him and I said, um, I said, you know, I said, I don't want to disturb your evening. I said, but um, not only are you one of my favorite artists of all time, but I said, you know, to me, I said, I think Miss Jackson may be the best hip hop song of all time. And I believe that, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you know, it's certainly in my top five and he looked at me um he was at the dj table um and he looked at me and he and he there was a genuine smile and he said thank you man i really really appreciate that i said my pleasure man it's just great to see you and he shook my hand and we had you know this little moment and then i went over to the bar and i used to drink at that bar dos equis and i don't know maybe about 45 minutes later I was finishing the Dos Equis. I think I'm sitting by myself. 
And the bartender puts a Dos Equis in front of me. And he said, compliment to the gentleman. And it was Andre, 3000. He raised his glass to me. I raised his. He smiled. That's awesome. And that was it. But, you know, you know, it's That's those little awesome. moments. Still, it's, it's still it's awesome, not, though, to it, know it's that. Not, it's not the big things. Yes. You know, because, you know, until something monumental happens for you in that business that's really what it is but it's moments like that and to me it wasn't the celebrity i didn't get a picture and ask him for his autograph it was the connectivity to somebody that you artistically respect mm-hmm. it's not it's not being a fanboy it's not chasing i met this guy no it's just connecting to someone that you genuinely brought joy and happiness to your life and you get to meet them and not yeah. only when you meet them they're really gracious um i've always taken that um approach uh to different people i've served um i've served a cocktail to michael irvin hall of fame football player um cory dillon who i don't think is in the hall of fame but Absolutely. he certainly had uh, the, the football player for the cincinnati Bengals. uh cory i didn't even know it was him he looked familiar but um, we just got to talking about football, and um, he said, I played in the league. I, and I said, oh, I said, you know, I'm really sorry. Forgive me. I just don't recognize. He said, Corey Dillon. I was, I was like, oh, my God. I was like, you were on my fantasy team three years. You know, you scored a lot of touchdowns for me. You know, like, we laughed, and I bought a cocktail. <laughs> and, you know, and, like, we had this really cool um, – I had a similar thing with um, – oh, God. Um no, he was a, a legendary West Coast DJ, who it was. DJ, um, DJ Quick, I believe. Um, similar type of thing. Okay. Um, but um, so uh, along in lines with, with, with cool encounters I had, um, it, it, to your question, like, you know, what are the ones that stick out? One, for me as, as an 80s and 90s, a 90s young adult and an 80s kid, um, I grew up as a mm-hmm. huge Guns N' Roses fan. Huge Guns N' Roses. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, I, I know, mean, I know even some people even now. I mean, for, so for a band that's only fan. really had three significant albums, I mean, they're, they're iconic, right? I mean, they're iconic. Their songs are iconic. Yes. Their, their, their image is iconic. Their musicianship is iconic. And Slash was Yeah, absolutely. LA, um, I've never seen Slash, although most of my friends have Slash people run into like in the supermarket. And they're like, hey, Slash. He's like, hey, man, how you doing? Like I heard he's like a super nice guy. Um, and uh, uh-huh. um, I've met Steven Adler, who's uh, the original drummer, super nice guy. Um, but working um, at a, uh, again, a, a bar restaurant I worked at, um, I was working on a really busy night and this guy comes up to me and he's barking, like not barking, but he's like anxiously asking me for an order. And I said, uh, I said, pal, there's a line, you know, like that kind of thing. And he said, no, no, I'm the manager of this other part. I said, Oh, I said, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was, it was a big place. And I said, Oh, I didn't know. I'm sorry. And uh, he said, I need cheeseburger. I need you to make me because we, you know, I need you to really concoct me a really good cheeseburger plate. And I said, okay. 
I said, and he's like, you got to bring it up. You got to, you got to, um, you got to get it for me on the fly. I said, okay. You know, he was a manager. I was like the assistant manager, whatever shift lead. And the guy, we were, there was a show filmed. The Jimmy Kimmel show was filmed in close proximity. And I, I guess okay. I've always had pretty good instincts for things like this. And I said, who's it for? And the guy looked at me because of the type of persona, personality, um, uh, privacy that this that this artist wants. He was a little reluctant, but I mean, what's he going to do? I mean, we're working. He looked at me and he went, Axl Rose. I said, well, there's 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 only one condition. Oh, wow. I got to deliver the cheeseburger to him because it was like a to go water type of thing. Type of thing. Huh. I was like, I got to deliver it to him. He said, and You were like, I want, I okay. want it. For you know it. the rules with a guy like him. Uh-huh. No pictures, no autographs, no nothing. I said, No problem. I just want, I because you I know just what it is. Axel Rose. He is reclusive. And he, to me, was like a Michael Jackson kind of artist to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I have their records on vinyl. Okay, I have a yeah, like really, really like rose stands tattooed out to on you. my arm. I mean, you know, like that kind of thing. Not just really for the band. I mean, it means other uh-huh. things, but it was just it was the soundtrack of my youth. Their music, among other music, was the soundtrack of my youth. And again, it's he's a reclusive person. He doesn't live, you know, he lives outside of L.A. He lives in Malibu. And I said, I got to deliver it. And um. So we made the thing and a friend of mine who worked with me, who was much younger than me, shows you, like I said, the scope of the influence. Um, he's like, oh, my God. I was like, come up with me. You know, the rules. Can't. He's like, absolutely. And um, we passed it off to the people kind of in his entourage. And um, at the time, the lead guitarist of Guns N' Roses mm-hmm. was um, uh, a guy named DJ Ashba. This was before Slash came back. Um, you know, before there was like this, you know, they reunited and I got to talk to him for, to DJ for a long time. And he was super nice. Um, Axel was fine. It was just, he was protected. You know what I mean? It wasn't like he was evasive or anything. He was just protected. Yeah. And, um, but I handed it off to the person standing next to him. And that was a, whoa, you know what I mean? That was a, whoa kind of moment for me yeah absolutely you know maybe to other people it's like i never really liked their music but for me that was like i said that was like being in proximity to michael jackson or you know maybe to people who grew up you know idolizing like madonna or frank sinatra you know what i mean that was that kind of like that was that to me because i I knew wow on some level that his, the type of celebrity he is, I would never get that chance again. So there was, so there was that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that yeah, was absolutely um, a wonderful, um, just a wonderfully cool moment. Um, in that same place, I waited on Steve Nash, um, and he was a wonderful guy. Um, the, oh yeah, coach of the Nash Nets. Is, uh, Steve Nash. Well, Nash is now the coach guy. of the um, Again, it was super professional. There was no, you know, there was nothing at, at the end. And just at the end, when I dropped the check, um, I just told him I was a big fan, which I am and was. And um, he said, thanks, man. And um, that was it. That was it. Super professional, super nice. 
Um, that was a really cool, that was a really cool thing. Um, a year ago. So no, 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 that was, that was the Steve Nash. Oh, about seven years. All right. So we're getting more recent. Yeah. So this, this was, well, yeah, that, this, this might've been the best story. one. Hold on. I got to, re- I have to relight my cigar. Oh, I think, I think okay. the next one is going to be my favorite one. That's fine. Hold on. Ignition, hold on. Again, Ed's character to the podcast. Absolutely. It's a big fat one, this. too. Great. It's a Jaime Garcia, my father's cigars. Wonderful smoke. There you Connecticut go. wrap, smooth. Don't tell your dad I told you that. It'll kill me if I get to interesting cigars. Okay, perfect. Um, so, oh, that I'm at the uh, supermarket near my place. And this was really interesting, Phil, because I was leaving that afternoon to go to Cleveland to see my father. Okay. For no real reason. Okay. Um, uncharacteristically, my the flight was delayed. Now, there wasn't any weather to deal with. They just delayed the flight like another four or five hours. So I was about ready. I was going to the supermarket, picking something oh, up. God. Then I was going right back home to get a lift to go to um, to, to tow to the airport. And to to but airport. I had more time, so I stayed in the supermarket a little longer. And I paid for my stuff. I bought a little bit extra groceries, extra stuff. Took my time because I wasn't rushed now. And as I'm after I paid for my groceries, I'm walking out. And there's a guy standing there getting ready to have, uh, I guess, like maybe maybe some help to his car or something like that. He had a lot of stuff. And I'm looking at this guy. And there was no doubt about it. It was Mr. T. Now, again, as a child oh of God. the 80s, you had to be there. Rocky Three, the, the 80s, Mr. T from 1982 uh-huh. to 1985 was as big of a star as there was in the world. I the, I mean, as far as okay. charity, recognizable. He was on President Reagan's fitness ambassador. I mean, he was just a mega star. And not many people look or speak or act like Mr. T. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, you know, Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant are similar guys. Mm-hmm. You can't say, you know what celebrity reminds me of Mr. T? No, nah, there is no. There's one Mr. T. There's one Mr. T. And yeah, like, there's one Mr. All T. all the people I, I bumped into, waited on, missed, I was starstruck. I became eight years old again. I mean, I was like friggin' starstruck. And I also really like the person he is. He's a spiritual person. Mm-hmm. He's a positive person. He's come through adversity. Um, he is, he's a God-fearing man. And I said, fuck it, Andy, you gotta. And I walked up to him and I said, Mr. T, I said, it's just like, I don't know, man. I'm like, this is like I'm a kid again. I'm just such a huge fan. And he went, my man, how you doing? He went, you know, he went, he went, I love meeting fans and I love meeting people. He went, I'm here. Because God blessed me with wonderful opportunities to come out of the streets of Chicago to do what I'm doing. And 
it means so much to me for you to say that. He went, let's take a picture, my friend. And he gave oh, God, I have it framed. I got fra- I'll show them. You, you have the picture. And you have the picture. I framed them. They're, they're hanging in you my You have place. it framed? And, and again, I've met a lot of people. That, to me, is my prized one. Oh, that's and awesome. he put his arm around me. And he put the widest, most beautiful smile. And the two of us are like headlocking each other practically. Now, this is in the middle of a crowded supermarket. Oh, wow. I was going to say, like, you're, the setting Phil, already, you set it in is like saying it's a Phil, crowded not place. And at night when it's it, like I'm talking like fucking noon. Mr. T. Noon. This guy stopped to take a picture with me. Oh, and wow. He wasn't trying to be indiscreet. He wasn't trying to say, hey, here, let, let's go down to my car and we'll take it. I don't want this. He was just. And he was. And the thing is. You know, his persona is serious. You know, like, in other words, he was not, you know, it wasn't like he was just affably walking around. He had places to go. And he had just finished a workout. He was, like, in his workout clothes. Uh-huh. And I tell you, this guy's, you know, in his mid-60s. I mean, he was oh, still wow. a brick shit house. I mean, a, oh, and he's, and he's tall. I, mean, he's a I was going to say, he's oh, probably God, still, like, jacked, right? He's at least 6'1". Really? He's, tall? he's a big guy and he gave me this oh, wow. this, this like brotherly headlock and we took two or three I snapped two or three things his smile was as broad as you can get and he shook my hand and he went thank you for your love and god bless you and I said the same thing to you that was my favorite one you know that and you know that stuff that doesn't happen in middle america That's that awesome. doesn't happen where we're from no disrespect to where we're from or to middle America, but that's like only in LA that moment. Again, you know, like Mm -hmm. I said, of all the tremendous people I've, um, uh, you know, bumped into served a beer to pick the dirty plate up from seen on a set that one, um, because he was so larger than life and it was the connectivity to my childhood. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it was it was the connectivity mm-hmm. to my childhood, yeah, absolutely. and to the joy and the humor and the let. Don't forget, he was involved in the he was the headliner of the first WrestleMania. You know, I mean, this was this guy was like I said in the early to mid eighties. I mean, he was as big of a of a of an entertainer as you can imagine. Um, uh, like you said, you ask anyone who was there, your dad, anyone who mm-hmm. remembers those days. You know, like I said, for for two years. I mean, you you turned on the TV. He was on three channels and the president was on two. You know what I mean? I mean, it was like literally, literally that kind of status. Oh, wow. And for him to just be gracious. And, and like I said, I wasn't my normal calm, collected self. I mean, I, 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 no, I, I, was, I was a fanboy. I mean, I was, I was literally, I was confused. You just were like, start. I was like, you're Mr. T. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Here I am, like a 40, 43, 44 year old man. Like, you know, like, holy shit, over, over the guy and he couldn't have been more gracious. He couldn't have been more of a gentleman. Um, yeah. And he gave me a picture that was just, again, man, priceless. But, yeah. Like, couldn't and believe it. I just that like mean really interacted with Mr. T. You know, to just have a, a connectivity with somebody that I admire, that I admire as a man that I admire as an entertainer, as somebody that came from nothing, that made something from himself, that bought his mother a house with his first paycheck, that, you know, uh, 
that has just tried to give joy to people through his ability to entertain, that's something I respect immensely. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's 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 cool. And like I was saying before, you know, just end this in a few minutes, just thinking about all the stuff I just said about, you know, celebrities and all that stuff, the the status in that people have in LA is you know, some of them can, I think we all look at it differently. Some people look at a celebrity and just think, oh, it's just that guy from this person. Or like you said, oh my God, like that's whoever. But well, that's it. again, like I said, they're, they're just as human as us, you know, and that's, and it's crazy that certain people think of them as just that one person. But the way you describe the stories as it's yeah. just like meeting another yeah, person yeah. that you never met before that in was, your entire you know, life. That was that. Um, you know? And, and, and you know, you realize yeah. that. And it also, I, I think things like that also help you um, for blending in, you know, like you, because you, you ask, like, what's one of the uh, differences? And you, you got to realize culturally, you know, when you, when you walk around Manhattan again, pre, you know, what we're going through now, who do you bump into? You bunk into stock traders, bond traders, secretaries, attorneys, maybe some, you know, artists and actors, um, maybe not household names, but when you're in LA, you know, this is where the entertainment people live. So you see them go to CVS, you see them go to the supermarket, you see them get Uh their car washed. You see them at the dentist office, you know, like there's that kind of there's that kind of thing that's unusual, I think, for people in the rest of the country, because we only know people like that through um, television sets and movie screens. You know, so like you said, there's a two dimensional. Two dimensional Mm. um, aura to those people that we have in our lives that has entertained us. Well, like I said, when you work in L.A., when you live, work, play in L.A., you know, you run into those people that you held in high esteem, at least artistically hold in high esteem, you know. And uh, so that's like a huge difference. You know, it's like a big thing. Yeah. That's that's awesome. That really is. That's that's cool to know those stories. I don't even I mean, I've, I've known some of those stories that you've said before, but some of them I, I've just like. Well, oh, I never I, knew I, that I at all, but and that's and even really in, um, cool to hear those. Even in the, uh, you, out there. you know, I, I waited on Flavor Flav um, and Flavor, you know, Flavor Flav at the end. I, I again, I, it was completely oh, wow. professional, but at the end I said, I said to him, um, I, I said, you know, your music, you and Chuck's music, Chuck D, of course, from Public Enemy, I said, you know, for a kid from from the far end of Staten Island, I said, educated me so much. And he stood up and he went, come here, G. And he always called everybody G. Yeah, G. And he went, come here, G. And he gave me this bear hug. Uh-huh. You know, again, Flavor Flav, people know him from a reality show. Oh, wow. People know him as an 80s, maybe early 90s rap star. But to me, he was an artistic, he is an artistic god. He's an artistic icon to me. Always will be. For the rest of my days, no matter how long I live, he'll be his music and the music of the people he worked with in Public Enemy opened my eyes to a whole other culture that I was interested in, but I didn't live in proximity to. And he told 
me stories and Chuck D told me stories yeah. that made me a, um, a more layered human being. So what's that worth? You know what I mean? What, mm. you know, if somebody does that for you that you don't even know personally, yeah. if someone does that for you, what is that? What, what, what are they worth in your life? Well, they're worth a lot. And then to, and then to be able, then to be able to serve them a meal mm. and to have a pleasant professional interaction. And then for them at the end to say, thank you for your service and thank you for what you've done. Give me a hug. My God. You know what I mean? Yeah, that must be really cool. So, yeah, absolutely. So, Andrew, I think I'm going to end this here. I want to thank you personally for taking the time. Obviously, it's 340. No, Phil, thank you. I mean, thank you. I want to thank you personally for taking the time. This this was an hour and a half. Phil, I feel like we've been on the phone five minutes, man. Um. Well, let's know, let's do this. It goes um, it goes by quick. When next you're time we this, do this, really does. I, I I pray we do it again. Um, um, I would love to talk more about just the lifestyle differences Absolutely. on a much more day to day thing. You know what's what's nutrition like out here? What's your day like in L.A.? What's it like living? You know, in perpetual sunshine. It's eighty two degrees here. It's it's the end of December. What's it? What what does that change? You know, because um, mm-hmm. it means it's it's a big difference um, when yes. at the end of, you know when you don't have to um, constantly change your wardrobe every two months. Um, you know, it's it's a huge difference, brother. So um, yeah. So you know, if <laughs> we, we can do this again, um, if you'd like, I'd love to get into that stuff. Perfect. Yeah, we definitely can. All right, so I'm going to end it here. I will. Thank you. You again, guys stay as safe. Always. Um, stay safe out there. And well, literally, we'll see you. Um, I guess if, we'll see you. I, I guess I'll be I'll, seeing you. I'll be in on the evening of the 22nd. If we can't get together that day, we'll get together the 23rd and, of course, on Christmas. Yes, absolutely. All right. Can't Andrew, wait, I'll brother. Be speaking to you soon. I'll send you the God link to this you. when this is all Thank ready you. and set and done.